So Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now back to chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any, to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. And would you please uh, join with me in prayer? Father, as we uh, reflect on these two passages, um, these records of this extraordinary moment in the history of your church, um, where your spirit was at work in a spectacular fashion, um, when you were enabling this community to love each other in an obvious way, we ask, Lord, that you would help us as we listen, as we look, uh, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would shape us, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, that more and more we would become that community of love through Christ Jesus that you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there comes a time in every boy's life when he moves from boyhood to manhood, when he goes from ignorance to deep understanding. And I'm, a, I'm talking, of course, of that moment when a boy learns how to tie a tie. Every, every boy, every man at some point learns how to tie a necktie. But if you are someone who has not made this important transition in your life, uh, let me tell you how. I found this description of how to do it from the internet, which means it's reliable. And so let me just kind of quick tutor you on how to tie a tie. So you place the tie around your neck. Number two, cross the wide end over the thinner end. Number three, run the wide end under the tie and pull it across again. Step four, pull the wide end through the center Step five, loop the knot. Step six, tighten the knot. I think we're all set now. Actually, we probably aren't. My guess is if you're anything like every other person I have ever met, if you ever have learned to tie a necktie, it is not through written instructions. It's either through someone showing you or if you really were in a pinch, maybe you two. Because, of course, there are some things that are complicated enough that you can only really learn how to do it by imitating. 
I mean, we, we know that principle elsewhere. Have you ever tried to help an elderly parent or grandparent over the phone do something on their computer? It's painful. You just wish that you could kind of reach through the phone and click on the mouse for them because they, they really can't be described. It has to be shown. There are some things that just need to be shown for us to really understand that we need to see it if we want to do it. And I'd suggest that as we have been thinking about what it looks like to be a loving community, there's an aspect to that. Same way that there's something about being a loving community that is complex enough that we really need to see it to be able to understand how to do it. If you've been with us the last couple of months, you know that our our kind of single-minded focus over these last weeks in the fall has been about love. The, the, The Bible's command is to pursue love, and that's what we've been seeking to do. We've been asking, how do we grow in love? And we've thought about how it it begins with us knowing the love of God for us and us surrendering ourselves to it, saying, all that I am, all that I have belongs to you, O God. And then in that surrender, then obeying as God instructs us how to love. And then we look, so what does that love look like? And we we spoke about the call to love one another genuinely, without hypocrisy. The call to love our enemies, to to overcome good, uh, sorry, to overcome evil with good, with love. But I wonder if at any point as we've been thinking this through, you felt a little bit like what I just did with describing how to tie the tie. Yes, okay, maybe that's factually correct, but what does it look like? If we're trying to grow into a community that is loving, a community that is filled by the Spirit, because that's at the very heart of this. The reason that we can pursue love and actually believe that it will happen is because God has given us His Spirit, the same Spirit that enabled Christ to love is the Spirit that's at work in us. So how do we become, what does it look like to be the Spirit-filled community of love? And I want to suggest to you that the passages that we just read, Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, those two summaries of what was taking place in the early church is meant to be exactly that for us. Just to give a, a, a bit of context, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the passage, what, what's happened just recently, about a little more than a week before Jesus has instructed his 120 followers, because that's all there are right now, his 120 followers to wait and to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And after they wait and after they pray, and Jesus has ascended at this point, at a certain point on Pentecost Day, something extraordinary happens. You hear the sound of great wind. You hear and see fire falling upon people's heads. You see people speaking in different languages, and there's such a commotion and such a gathering that thousands come, and Peter stands up, and he preaches the gospel. He speaks of what the crucified Jesus has done and who he is and how he has risen from the dead. And rather than him being stoned, Thousands, 3,000 people come to faith and are baptized. And at that moment, the church begins. Now, if you know the book of Acts, you know that in subsequent chapters, you'll realize that this is not always a pretty picture, that there's some ugly things about the church from very early on. There's disagreements, there's complexity, but it seems that Early on in the life of the church, God does something extraordinary, that the Spirit is poured out in just an unusually profound way so that the church early on is is functioning with each other in the way that a church is supposed to. It's almost like God is saying, I'm going to start 
by showing you what things are supposed to look like. I'm going to, by the Spirit, enable people to love each other beautifully so that when you try to understand what does it look like to be a loving community, you can look back at this. This can be a template because sometimes you need to see something to be able to do it. And so that's what I'd like for us to do this morning. It's just simply to kind of look to look at as the Spirit is filling this young church and they are loving each other, what does that look like? And and as we're looking to ask, in this final sermon in this series, ask a few questions about what might that look like for us as we seek to imitate them. So that's what we're going to be doing together. You might notice in that uh, passage from chapter 2, verse 42 kind of acts almost like a table of contents. It describes all that Luke wants to highlight about this early church, and it it speaks about four things that they devoted themselves to. Everything else really is kind of expansion of this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so that's what we will draw our attention to. First, let's just think about that first one. Actually, we'll look at the first and the fourth one together, about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and how they devoted themselves to prayer. And and what we see by looking at that is that, that this loving community that God has established is being brought together by Jesus. Here's why I'm highlighting this. You should recognize that this, 3, 000, this group of 3,000 people, they're not all the same. Um, in Pentecost, you have people from all over the world, Jews from everywhere, pretty much coming together for this feast. And so this group of people who have come to Christ, you have some people from Africa, you have some people from Asia, you have some people from Rome, you have some locals. They all have different native tongues. To be blunt, these are people who would not naturally be coming together. And yet they are. In fact, chapter 4 speaks about how the full number of those who believed, every single one, were of one heart and soul. They were completely united, the same passion, the same love. They were one. Why? Well, verse 33 of that passage helps us understand. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That this is what brought them together. Yes, they might have different traditions, they might have different languages, but they were saved by Jesus. And they loved Jesus, and they wanted to know Jesus more, and they longed to see other people know Jesus more, and that heartbeat that drove them brought them together. Jesus brings them together. So in in verse 32 of that first passage, when it talks about how they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, we should understand that that's not just saying that they would come to the temple, hear the teaching, listen passively, and be done. No, devoting implies this ongoing thinking about it. When they were walking to the temple, they were talking with each other. When they left and they went home over dinner, they would think about this together and talk, what does this look like that we're following Jesus? What does it look like to be on mission with him? And at the end of the time, they would be praying for each other in every aspect. They were devoting themselves to learning about Jesus, to praying in Jesus' name, and this is what galvanized them and united them. If you want to know what lies at the heart of a spirit-filled church, it's Jesus. Jesus is what holds a truly loving community together. 
And that might seem obvious, but I think actually one of the dangers that can happen for a church that really cares about loving each other is that community can start becoming the thing that people focus on. How, how do we become more of a loving community? Community is the buzzword. Everyone's looking for community. How can we be a community? And that's all good unless it starts becoming the thing when the thing should be Jesus. There are all sorts of other communities that people come together around. There's the, the Rotary Club. There's the Hinsdale Junior Women's Club. These are great communities. That's not who we are. What defines us is not any other affinity. We bring together all, the church brings together all sorts of different people, people from different languages, people of different ethnicities, people who are Democrats and Republicans, people who are Bears fans and Packers fans. And we're all brought together because we love Jesus. Jesus is what holds us together. The more the more we are focused on who we are in Christ, the more that He is our center, the more that we are focused on our mission in Christ Jesus, the more that our identity is found in Christ Jesus, the closer we will be together, the more we will learn to love each other, not just because we like each other, although we do, but because we love Jesus. And that's what defines us, and that's what brings us together. So here's the question that I'd like us to consider as we're thinking about this example of this people who were so defined, so united by Jesus. What would it look like if our relationships were more obviously defined by our love for Jesus? If, if it was more explicit, if it was more clear that the reason we're together and why we're friends, a huge part of it is because of our love for Jesus. You know, I, I was thinking about this for myself, and I was realizing something that I, I'm seeking to grow in is being more just comfortable in casual conversation talking about Jesus. Maybe you're the same way. I, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's my, my New England reservedness, or maybe, I, you know, it's my deep fear of saying anything awkward or cringeworthy. But if you get me in an intellectual conversation where we're talking about a passage, I am there. But if, you, if we just are in, in talking about normal day-to-day -day life, for me to speak about how Jesus is at work in my life and how I see him and, and the struggles that I might have, that doesn't come as natural to me. And I wish it did. I'm, I'm wanting for it to become more that way. I'm wanting to be more like, and this is something that won't mean anything to you at first, I want to be more like my Aunt Patty. So, the thing that you should know about my Aunt Patty is that the first time you meet her, you might wonder if you're finding someone from another planet. I mean, she is, she's just, I, I, I can't think of a single thing that she does that is normal or conventional. In fact, she loves the fact that she's unconventional. I mean, for Christmas, she doesn't have a Christmas tree. At least in the past, she would have a happy birthday party for Jesus. Um, she, she's incredibly earthy. Um, she uh, is charismatic, which means sometimes she'll talk about the, the work of the Spirit in a way that maybe we'd find a little bit odd. But here's the thing that I admire so much about her. She's always talking about Jesus. She's always talking about how she is being taught by Jesus in different ways, things that she's learning, how she's being guided by Jesus. You could not possibly know my Aunt Patty without knowing that she loves Jesus. And it's beautiful. And what I wonder is, what would happen if we were more that way? My guess is it would be awkward at first, right? Because it is a struggle sometimes to know how to speak 
more transparently about something that is so personal to us. But don't you think if we learned more to speak of our love for God and Jesus in our normal conversations, encourage each other in different ways, that would bring us closer together? Because if you are in Christ, there is no one that matters more to you than Jesus. And to talk about him with others brings you together. That's that's what we see when the Spirit is at work. Jesus brings together a community, and that's the first thing that we notice here. So it says also not only that they were devoting themselves to the teaching, but it also says they were devoting themselves to the fellowship. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word fellowship uh, just simply can be translated sharing. So uh, there's a place in Hebrews 13 that says, uh, do not forget to do good or to share with others because for such sacrifices God is pleased. And that to share with others is just the same exact word as fellowship here. This is just simply talking about sharing with each other. And, And what I find striking is how much of these descriptions, when Luke wants us to understand what extraordinary things are taking place in the early church, how much time is being spent talking about how they share. I mean, did you notice? This is the single most described part of these passages. So we see in verse 44 of the first passage, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And similarly, in in, in chapter 4, uh, it spe- says that when they're one in heart and soul, no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And then verse 34 tells us more. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Do you see how much is being focused on about the way, about the way that they are sharing so, so, so what are we seeing? If we're trying to understand this example, what is this looking like? It's interesting that some people are so struck by this, this transformed relationship to possessions that they say what we have here is the very beginning of communism. And it's not. I mean, that, that, that's, I don't think that's an adequate description because communism implies an end to all possessions, implies a forced surrendering of goods, and we don't see that here, right? People, everything that is given is given voluntarily out of love, a free gift. And what's more, it's clear that people still continue to possess things. It talks about how people go into each other's homes day in and day out, which means people still own their own homes, right? So it's a mistake to kind of just uh, kind of bring in kind of an anachronistic understanding here. This isn't communism, but you understand their point, and that's why some people actually say the better way of describing this is communalism. Because there is... uh, an extraordinarily different attitude to possessions here. I mean, the, the fundamental verse is the idea that they were one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I, I try to imagine, like, what that would look like in modern day. If, just imagine for a moment today that we have a number of people who kind of moved from out of town and are here and don't have a home, and we just say, hey, we've got an extra room. You can stay as long as you want, and that becomes just the practice. 
Or if you can imagine, say we're in a congregation with, with a diverse group of needs and a number of people who are unemployed and people who aren't affording it, and someone just liquidates all of their assets and says, this is what you need, we will take care of you, don't worry about it. That's what's going on here. It speaks, and remember, people are coming from all over, they're staying at the homes because of hospitality taking place. It says, those who have extra land... Because that's how you invested in that day. You don't have stocks. You don't have bonds. If you wanted to have some sort of investment that will pay off and hopefully pay for you, it would be in land. Anyone who had extra lands, it said, they just sold it. That's, that's not a tithe, by the way. That's, that's like cutting their income by 50%. And they gave it to any as had need. And I think what we're supposed to understand here is that that when the Spirit is at work, you can see the Spirit at work because He does something that you never see anywhere else. He transforms the relationships we have to our possessions. I mean, we can understand this idea that no one thought of anything as his own if we just take a step back and think that's, that's how we are in our families, right? If after church, my youngest son, Joel, somehow broke his arm. I wouldn't wait to take him to the hospital until he promised that he would pay me out of his allowance for the hospital bill. I mean, that would be absurd, right? Because, because we don't think of our possessions like that. We're a family. It's not mine. It's ours. But what we see here is that when the Spirit is at work, it doesn't just extend to my kids and to my wife. It's saying that when the Spirit is at work, there is such a deep love for each other that that's the way that we view our whole church body. So that if, if you have a need, it matters just as much to me as my own need. That's what was taking place. It said, and no one had need. And, and this is meant to actually make you realize this is a fulfillment. When God, when he's speaking in the Old Testament, he says in Deuteronomy, if you obey me, there will be no poor among you. And finally here, as the Spirit is at work, there is no poor amongst His people because of the way that they have been transformed as they are devoting themselves to the fellowship. They are giving themselves carefully to sharing. And so, so once again, I, I have to ask the question. So as we're thinking about this example, what, what would it look like for us to imitate this? Now, again, I think it should be clear that there's not any commands here. There's not this kind of like new biblical principle. There's other ways that we can see it. It, it involves kind of a voluntary loving and giving. But I do think that we're invited to change our attitude towards our possessions. What do you think would happen if every time you're doing your bills or looking at your bank account, you begin with a prayer of saying, Thank you, God, you have provided for me again. None of this is mine. All of it is yours, and you give it to me for the sake of your people. Please help me to know what to do with it. How would that change our attitude towards our possessions? I've been thinking about this for myself, and I've realized that if I... Um, if I'm to be as generous as I need to be, and actually even as generous as I want to be, I think it begins not first just with the giving, but for me it begins with thinking about spending. I realize as I thought about it that my patterns of spending are more shaped 
by our modern culture of consumption than by biblical priorities. And so I think that's probably where it would begin for me. I was thinking about this. There's um, a well-known preacher by the name of John Wesley. Probably some of you are familiar with him. And one of the things that he is known for was he had just this remarkable generosity towards others. Um, and, and, and it kind of it began in a moment of his failure. He was uh, living in Oxford at the time. He was in his 20s, and uh, he had gone out and bought some decorations for his apartment, and when he came back, he found a servant who was working at Oxford, and that this person had very thin clothing. It was a cold day, and he reached into his pocket because he wanted to give something, and he realized he had nothing left, and he felt convicted about how he had spent his money. And so he sought to kind of change the way he thought of spending, and and he, kind of as a test to help guide him, would pray this prayer. Here's the prayer he would pray when he was thinking about spending. He'd say, Lord, you see that I am going to spend this sum of money on this food or this clothing or this furniture. And, Lord, you know that in this I am acting as a steward of your goods, spending this to pursue the purpose you had in entrusting me with them. Let this, I ask you, be a holy sacrifice acceptable through Jesus Christ. That would be what he would pray when he was deciding what to spend. And if he felt like he could pray this in good conscience, then he would spend it. And the result was he gave thousands upon thousands of pounds because he realized that he only needed a small amount of what he once thought he needed, and he was able to give so much more. This is the work of the Spirit. What we see in this example of this community who is devoting themselves to the fellowship is this is what happens when the Spirit is at work. He transforms even the way that we relate to possessions. So we see a transforming, Jesus brings the community together. We see a loving community shares. And then thirdly, we see a loving community lives together. Again, if we go to that initial kind of table of contents, it says they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread. And the breaking of the bread here literally is just talking about dinners together. They are devoting themselves to having meals together regularly. Uh, we, we see more later on, it says in uh, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What's, what's described here is, is a regular, consistent connection with each other. Every morning before work, they go to the temple and they pray and probably hear some of the apostles' teaching. Then they go to their different jobs, whether it's in the fields or something else, and then in the evening when they're done, they come back to the temple and they meet again together to pray and maybe hear the teaching, and then they go to dinners in different people's houses, always eating together. They are devoting themselves to the breaking of the bread. Unless you think this is something that's just kind of like the short-term kind of experience, uh, it's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, written a few decades later, In chapter 3, it talks about how as Christians we need to exhort one another daily, which implies that we're so involved in each other's lives that we see each other every day. The, 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 The expectation in the early church as a community of love was that we would be so connected to each other, so involved in each other's daily lives, that we would be able to encourage each other day after day after day. Because how else are you going to love each other if you're not in each other's lives? How else are you going to do mission together if you're not in each other's lives? 
Now, I've got to say, of the three things that I've mentioned, the idea of Jesus being central to our relationships, the, the sharing of our finances, I, I wonder if this is the one that feels even the most foreign to us. Can you imagine what that would be like to be seeing each other every day, to be having dinner with each other every day, to make that what defines your life? It's, it's almost hard to imagine how our lives could look like that. And, and to be clear, once again, this is not, not a set of rules. Um, different, you know, love can look different in different contexts. And of course, we're in a different time in a different culture, and so it can't look exactly like that. I don't think that we should start having church every morning and evening for this week and coming weeks. But, you know, when you think about it and just try to imagine what this must have been like, don't you think we might have lost something along the way over these last two millennium? If you've been following uh, some of the trends in the news, one of the most common things that I've been seeing is this mention of how we in our culture are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. Have you seen this? Uh, a recent Surgeon General actually used that language, and it keeps on coming up. They've shown that, that the mortality rate of someone who is experiencing loneliness is roughly the same as someone who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day. That's striking to me. And, and right now, it is three times, there are three times more lonely people, people who say that they don't have anyone they consider a close friend, than even 30 years ago. And actually, these studies have shown that the people who experience it most keenly are the teenagers, people ages 16 to 24. It's not, it's not people who are in retirement homes or nursing homes that feel it most. It's actually those who are in our high schools. And, and when you hear all of this, you're saying, there, you, you, I think the conclusion we have to draw is there is something wrong with our culture. There's something sick about our culture where we are experiencing such deadly loneliness together. And I think it suggests that this is something that we fight back against. That we recognize we're being influenced by something that is truly demonic. That we were meant to be more connected to each other, involved in each other's lives. We were meant to be devoted to the breaking of the bread together. And so I, I ask again, what, what would that look like for us to imitate? What would it look like for us more intentionally to be sharing in our lives with each other? I wonder if some of you right now, even as you're hearing this, are, are saying, you might be right, but I'm just so completely overwhelmed by the idea of what you're saying. I mean, right now, I am so full on with everything. To add yet one more thing to my life would make me go nuts. And, and that might be true. And, and sometimes it's simply because we get, in certain stages of our life, with no ability on our behalf to be able to make it different. We are just in kind of a tornado. Like, that's how I felt when we had our, you know, two young children, both under the age of th three. It's like, I, I, I'm exhausted. I can't do anything. But I wonder if sometimes the reason that we can't even imagine living something even close to what's described here is because, well, because our virtue that we pursue above all else is productivity. Here's a little secret. Maybe you didn't realize it. If you go through the list of the fruit of the Spirit, productivity is not one of them. 
we laugh, but don't we feel sometimes more compelled to be productive than we feel compelled to be joyful? And so we fill our schedules with so much productivity, and we are productive, and our kids have 200 activities tomorrow, and we have so many things to do that, of course, we have no bandwidth to be able to say, hey, come to my house this evening, and we can just hang out, because that's not productive. But if we're devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread, maybe we have to say productivity is a false god. And because I think this is important, I'm going to be prayerfully asking God, what are things that I can drop from my schedule so that I can be more connected to others? Because a spirit-filled community lives together. They're involved in each other's lives. And I don't even know exactly what this looks like because when our culture is so wired against it, this is not going to be something that happens easily. So let me just ask you to pray and consider what is one way you can step towards this? Maybe it's when you go grocery shopping, inviting a friend to go with you. Maybe it's making a goal once a month to have people over and it not having to be this perfect thing, but just hanging out with pizza or something like that. How can we be in each other's lives? Because that's the only way we're going to be able to grow together. I hope, as we've been trying to think these questions, that you haven't lost sight of what this passage is meaning for us to see. Do you see this community? Are you able to imagine it at all, this this community that every day was thrilled to see each other. They were praying together in morning and evening. They were talking together as they were having meals about Jesus and what it meant to follow him and how they can continue to work together. They were united. They were willing to give up whatever they had because they cared about each other just as much. Can you, can you at least begin to imagine what that must have been like? If you can, is it any wonder that we're told that daily more people become Christians in that time. Because daily people are looking, it's like, I have never seen anything like this. I want to know what's going on. Through this extraordinary spirit-filled love, people saw Jesus. And what I want to tell you as we close this series is this is not just this high point that we can look back at longingly. This is your future. See, the, the very spirit that enabled this to take place is the spirit who is now working in us. And every day, he is actually moving us towards this kind of community that is united by Jesus, that, that truly shares with each other, that truly is involved in each other's lives, and it might take an entire lifetime. We might not fully experience it until Christ returns, but that is the direction that we're going. And my prayer is that even through these weeks, as we're thinking about love together, that the Spirit might be making us more like this. Because isn't that what we want? Because isn't that beautiful? I don't know of anything that more would show the glory of Jesus than for us to be a community that is truly characterized by this kind of love. I invite us now, as is our custom as we conclude, to just take a couple of minutes in prayer and allow God to kind of speak to us and examine our hearts. And if there are things that, that God has exposed to us, to spend time in confession and then I'll lead us in prayer together in a couple of minutes' time.
Father, as we uh, consider this beautiful picture of what you call us to be, I know, speaking personally, I, I see things within myself that stand in the way of that. Um, my own fears and selfishness. And Father, you see how that is true for many of us. Lord, we confess our sin. We, we want to be wholly yours, wholly obedient, wholly loving you with all of our being and loving each other as you call us to. We confess our sin. We entrust, we entrust this all to Jesus who has died for us. And we ask um, in hope, in the hope of your promises that you've given us your spirit, the spirit of love, that you not because we deserve it, but because you tell us you will do it, that you would build in us this community, a love that is extraordinary, that helps the world to see you, to see Jesus more clearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The very sermon that was preached before we have the passage that we read, here's how Peter concludes. Peter says uh, to these thousands of people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Brothers and sisters who have received God's sign of baptism and have repented of your sins, hear the good news. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. And you have received the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God.